Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. In this episode, ILSR co-director John Farrell interviews Jill Mangaliman, executive director of Got Green, and Abigail Wanair from Puget Sound Sage about Seattle's Jumpstart Tax. This tax applies to businesses with annual payrolls over $7 million, and the revenue is used to fund local projects centered around affordable housing in the city's Green New Deal. With that, let's head to the show. We could just start with at the basic level, I'm interested in hearing about the Jumpstart tax. So like, what was the idea behind it? How much money is it going to collect and who's paying for it? Jumpstart is the progressive revenue legislation that the Seattle City Council passed this summer in July. It's estimated to bring around $214 million a year. And who's paying for it? It's businesses with payroll expenses for employees with at least $150,000 in annual compensation. And it's structured in three tiers, if you want me to go over it really quickly. Yeah, I think that's useful. I think it's really intriguing for folks in other cities to even just understand a little bit about this kind of structure of local taxation. Yeah, yeah. It is structured in three tiers. Businesses with payroll expenses up to $100 million, the rates are 0.7% of employees with annual compensation between $150,000 and $400,000. And then it will be 1.7% of those with annual compensation about four hundred above $400,000. And then the other tier, the next tier is for businesses with payroll expenses between $100 million and $1 billion. And the the tax rate for that is 0.7% for employees with annual compensation between $150,000 and $400,000. And then 1.9% for those with annual compensation above $400,000. And then the third tier is for businesses with payroll expenses over $1 billion. And the rate for that is 1.4% for for annual compensation between $150,000 and $400,000. And then 2.4% for those annual compensation above 400000 And businesses with payroll expenses under $7 million are exempted from this. So it's really progressive, I guess, on almost like three different facets. You have, you're only taxing high-paid employees, so folks who make a lot of money. You're only taxing businesses above a certain payroll level, but also that in an amount that goes up. So you're really focused on like big corporations and people at big corporations who make a lot of money were sort of the targets for raising this revenue. I did a little ballpark, did a little Googling about the size of the city budget, and it looks like this is going to raise something like three, sort of about 3% of what the annual city budget was. So it's also not insignificant. It's going to actually be able to do some significant work for that amount of money. Yes, Absolutely. One of the questions I had was that this tax, the Jumpstart tax, wasn't the first attempt to tax large businesses to support local priorities in Seattle. And I'm just curious, what helped it pass this time around after the failure of a similar proposal back in 2018? I guess one major thing that was noticeable was, well, after last year when the the whole tax Amazon head tax was 
it was actually passed unanimously in the uh, city council and then it was revoked. There was it just kind of exposed just like how powerful Amazon is in our city. And actually, it, I, I, I feel like it created a bad taste in people's mouth. Like people were just like enraged too. like what the heck. And I, I think given the political conditions also right now in Seattle, there's just like some really strong organizing, and especially with the Black Lives Matter movement and just like a lot of more energy. I think that this time around, the political will was there. And, you know, the city council members also were working hand in hand with folks. But I, I do think like the the conditions were better than compared to the the first time it came through. And some of the issues were also like discussed and addressed in, in this, this iteration. That's my take. But I don't know if you have other thoughts on it, Abigail. It's similar to what you've, you've said. I was not even around in 2018, but we are in the middle of an unprecedented moment. This pandemic and the resulting economic downturn is really threatening our communities that have already been vulnerable even before this pandemic. So with the city's forecast of a budget shortfall, I think between 200 to 300 million, there just needed to be a more proactive approach to how we're going to raise these revenues without cutting the most essential services that are badly needed by our communities. So yeah, the city needed to find new sources of funding and continuing to increase sales tax, especially for the ones who are already suffering, was just not the right way to go about it. And so setting up a new source of revenue that is progressive is the right way to go. I was curious, with the tax, one of the things that we are very interested in in is when cities exercise authority in this way, whether it's with new taxation or maybe it's a new regulation, is trying to understand how much other communities could replicate that. Do you know, for example, could other cities in Washington do a similar thing? Other cities in other states, would they have the authority to do this kind of similar tax? I think it's possible. Like, if it's not, I think the the approach of city by city is a very good approach. And we saw that with like 15 minimum wage, right? It started in SeaTac and then it happened in Seattle and kind of like carried into other cities and then all over the nation, right? Until it got some grounding to actually become statewide. I think that that could be an approach. It would also help with kind of like the concerns around leakage. People talk about like, oh, well, if you do this tax, then Amazon will leave or they'll they'll go to Bellevue or Tacoma and so forth. And so I think if more and more cities do it, then it becomes the norm and they can't just escape taxation, you know, and actually be held accountable and actually pay their fair share. I'd like to ask both of you to talk a little bit about how your organizations were involved in the effort to adopt the tax and also maybe a little bit more about how it aligns with the work that your organizations do. Jill, do you want to talk about what Got Green had invested in this and how it aligns with the work that you do? Yeah. So we, we were doing a lot of like talking with community during the time we were pushing for the Green New Deal. And that kept coming up the question, like, how are we going to pay for this? You know, this is very ambitious to transition the entire economy, right? To one that's sustainable. And it became very clear from like all our conversations and surveys that people wanted something that wasn't going to fall on the backs of working people. And Abigail said, like, sales tax is really regressive. There were some initiatives on the table around like property tax levies. 
but still like we can't keep continue to squeeze everyday people who are not responsible right for these climate disasters that we really should be going to the top one percent or the corporations so it was very clear alignment with what we were hearing from the community even when we were doing work around the 1631 the the carbon tax in the in washington state that was something that we couldn't ignore like people were really concerned about paying taxes and everyday people uh, having it passed on to them. So this is something that the jumpstart, like the Amazon tax or, you know, these progressive taxes is something that we as an organization, we have to support just in, in, in terms of our beliefs around just transition. And ways that, you know, of course, having all these conversations around like revenue, I think the way we were involved, um, definitely we were, you know, we were definitely not the like taking lead around there in City Hall all the time, but we were consulted around where would we want some of the uh, revenue to go. Obviously, we we pushed for the basic needs and environmental justice and the Green New Deal, but also yeah, we mobilized folks to make phone calls and send letters to our city council to you know take that bold step. Abigail, do you want to talk about what Puget Sound Sage did as part of this and and kind of how it lines with the broader work that your organization is involved in? Puget Sound Sage has always advocated for policies that support the resilience of Black, Indigenous, people of color, immigrant and low-income workers and families. And even before the pandemic, our community partners have been experiencing threats of displacement. And what this pandemic has done is exacerbate these conditions. We already know that they suffer the most from the economic cost of this crisis because of the lack of resources and infrastructure to protect BIPOC and low-income communities from disaster, be it a climate-induced one or in a form of a socioeconomic shock, which we're both experiencing right now. And SAGE, like Got Green, we're not like the, the leading organization for this, but I've also been consulted around where we want to see the revenues go. And we saw an opportunity to advocate for dedicated funding, not just for Green New Deal, but also for the Equitable Development Initiative, which is a city program that we have long advocated for with our coalition partners in South Core and the Race and Social Equity Task Force. And so advocating for $20 million for Equitable Development Initiative, which we see as an anti-displacement strategy, that our coalition had fought for in previous years. And before the Jumpstart Revenues, its main source of funding was the short-term rental tax, which became unstable due to the, the COVID crisis. And with the vision for EDI to be funded at 20 million a year, we, we saw it as an opportunity to use this revenues to direct resources that will help our communities become resilient through community-led development and land stewardship, which SAGE has been advocating for because we see community stewardship of land as a way to address the displacement crisis that our communities have been facing. So in many forms, we see community stewardship as an antidote to the worst of the historic harms done to our BIPOC communities and they, they continue to be the ones who suffer the most and are the last ones to recover, especially with the crisis that we have right now. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about that idea of community land stewardship? Are you talking about like 
I'm familiar with like community land trusts where you've got a nonprofit that's owning the land under the properties. And so you're sort of preventing displacement due to rising property values. Is that what you're getting at? I just, I just want to make sure I understand. Yeah, community land trust is just one model of community stewardship. But at SAGE, we have come up with a definition of community stewardship of land, which for us, it means that communities, whether they're neighborhood-based or cultural-based or identity or issue focused, they're the ones who control the land with the intention to keep it out of the speculative market, with the intention to use it for permanent affordable housing, affordable business spaces and other social services and other community development that uses land as a resource. And one thing that is unique about our, our, our values around community stewardship of land is the group that owns the land is driven by strong values and they are accountable to the people they serve and they value democratic decision-making and they agree that the purpose of this land is to maintain it in perpetuity to make it affordable permanently or long-term. So community search of land essentially transform the purpose of land to not just be a commodity designed for uh, creating personal wealth, individual wealth, but treating land as a shared resource intended to benefit whole communities and keep them resilient. That's great. Thank you. More broadly with the Jumpstart tax, it looks like, as you have alluded to, a lot of the funds are really focused on housing affordability and and avoiding displacement. There's also a carve-out for so-called Green New Deal initiatives. It looks like starting in 2022. Do you see overlaps between the investments in affordable housing and the Green New Deal? And are there key elements of the, like a Seattle Green New Deal that you hope will be supported with these funds? Yes, totally. There's overlap. I mean, considering that we view like displacement as something that also creates pollution and and, and increases climate impacts, right? Like the more that we can keep people rooted in place and and with stable housing, the more resilient they'll be. And also we can reduce, right, carbon emissions as well at the same time. And so it's a complementary planning, but also by building, you know, housing, that's also like the potential for creation of jobs, as well as potential for creating green infrastructure, making it more accessible to the local communities here, the working class and BIPOC communities. Something that came up while we were advocating for a Green New Deal is like around the transition, right? Like how do we move away from fossil fuels? And so like not just new infrastructure, but also existing infrastructure Mm -hmm. needs to make that transition. And again, how do we support the communities and, and the workers in that transition, there has to be some real investments. And right now, yeah, there aren't a whole lot of programs out there that help support the, the costs to go from like natural gas and oil to electric or healthier types or solar. There's very little support and programming for that. So we really want to make sure that if we are going to, you know, make those goals of by 2030 <laughs> to move away from climate pollution, that we actually do so in an intentional way that doesn't leave any of our community behind. And I, I think that, yeah, the, the more that we can continue to have like really strong place-based solutions and support the local communities in building up their resilience plans, whether it's like increasing their food security or emergency plans or creating centers where folks can 
access health services in times of crisis or, or even shelter during wildfire. All of these will help not only create jobs, right, like locally, but also will help kind of meet many of our goals at the same time. And yeah, they should be around these areas of affordable housing. So they should go hand in hand together. So see a lot of potential for partnership and also a lot of alignment and goals. But yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. The Green New Deal is a, it's a, it's a big deal <laughs> and much needed. Abigail, were there specific things that your organization was looking for in terms of the initiatives or particular programs or ideas that Jumpstart would fund in Seattle? Uh, I think like Jill has already like talked about it. Our climate justice program is actively involved with the Green New Deal conversation. One of the things that I saw in terms of an ask of the city as part of this Green New Deal initiative program was that there would be funding for a community advisory board that would help oversee how the money was spent. I guess I'm curious to hear like what's important about having that community advisory role and then is that actually happening as, as far as you know? Yeah, so earlier this year, we were also like, what the heck, what's going on? Because <laughs> that was the next step after the Green New Deal passed. We ensured that there was going to be a creation of a Green New Deal Oversight Board to implement right, that vision. And so earlier this year, we heard that there wasn't going to be staffing or funding. That all changed with the jumpstart. Some of the Green New Deal coalition, we were able to get in there and state our, our needs. And so I think the reason why we pushed for it is that we know that implementation is key. Like we can have this really great vision, we can pass policies, but unless we're community is engaged and, and leading and driving, we can't guarantee like, right, it's going to reach the people on the ground. And so this is also a very necessary piece for accountability that it would actually happen that would be involving people who are impacted. So the advisory board had folks from very specifically from environmental justice communities representing youth, native tribes, as well as labor and like workers. And so that we can have a say in where these resources go. The importance of having it staffed and, and resourced by the city is also like for them to also be accountable and, and put their money where their mouth was, right? To actually dedicate resources to ensure that this body can convene and, and be supported for community members. It's it's very difficult to sit on these governance boards without any support. You know, people take time from their working day where they, you know, they have childcare or transportation needs. And on top of that, needing to, you know, organize a meeting and, and gather notes and gather research. It was a way for the city to actually invest and dedicate to their commitment to these Green New Deal goals. And we also seen when there isn't a staffing or resources, the, the burden falls again on the on the community members. And we really want to see the city step up and actually commit to making those goals and the Green New Deal. I have some firsthand experience with that in Minneapolis, where I sit on an advisory committee to some of the city's clean energy work. And the meetings are a couple hours long every quarter and in the late afternoon, and there's no support for the folks who participate. There's no stipend, there's no meal, there's no childcare. And in fact, they used to have snacks, like just like trail mix or something like that for people to have. And then they took that away. And so it's, it really is just striking how difficult it makes it. Because, you know, I, I'm a professional. I can bill my work time to participate in that. And it's lovely, but it really 
precludes ordinary folks from participating. I just want to add that it's actually exciting to put together this Green New Deal advisory board, especially because I think just last month, actually, not um, not too long ago, the city had just voted to pass the legislation to stand up a permanent equitable development initiative advisory board, which is we've had the interim advisory board for a years now and we've always wanted to have a permanent board for it and so it's exciting to really see the city commit to being accountable to the communities who are closest to the problems and also know the solutions that are needed. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. If you enjoy learning about innovative local policy solutions, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support our work. Beyond making this podcast possible, your donations support all of our work at ILSR. You can help us produce the research and resources necessary to push back against concentrated corporate power and build strong local communities. Go to ilsr.org donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And now back to John Farrell's conversation with Jill Mongaliman and Abigail Wanner about Seattle's Jumpstart Tax. One question I had about the funding and sort of, you know, both of you have alluded to this really important advisory role that the community plays in determining how funds are spent. I was also curious, one of the things that I have heard a lot from folks is that you'll set out these broad goals about how resources should be spent. And the aim of the legislation is that we want to help communities that have struggled, whether that's energy burdened or communities of color that have been redlined. Is there a part of the work, a way that the city is sort of identifying geography or demographics or something like that so that so that there's a way to be accountable to like, hey, we spent $10 million, we know that it went to the right place. Like, how do you, how do you track that, I guess, is what I'm curious about. Yeah, I think part of it is also how do we, like the people, like the people on the advisory committee should have roots or connection in the community they, that they're experts. And so they would know where is it going? And, but also how do we match that with data? There is the Washington disparities map, health disparities map that actually both our organization advised on and it was worked on in partnership with the University of Washington and Front and Center, which is a statewide climate coalition that we're both part of. And looking to, you know, how do we utilize um, like data and mapping, like where are the most vulnerable communities, risk of climate and displacement, and then utilizing our, our community relationships and understanding of the, the neighborhoods and identifying, okay, these are the priority places and, and communities. There, there exists a uh, environmental justice steering committee at the city that's carrying out the equity and environment agenda that a few years ago created. And so there already exists like, tons of information and 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 community expertise are like where are the most environmental hotspots in our city and the communities who are stu- leading that that work so i think it's just a matter of how do we break down those barriers so those those folks can actually be resourced to do that work i i, I feel like there's so, so much already much research already been done of like where are the community is most at risk of displacement and so the goal of this advisory communities like to break down those barriers and make it less challenging to access resources um, so that the community can continue to do the good work that they're doing.
that's my take. <laughs> like a lot of cities in doing this kind of like local climate and energy work, over 150 cities have made, for example, 100% renewable energy commitments by some date. Buildings and transportation obviously are a really big piece of this renewable energy goal. Obviously, we've already talked a little bit about the linkages between housing affordability and displacement and the Green New Deal. Will this fund, the Jumpstart tax funds, the 200 and some million a year, be enough to help address these issues and to help make that transition, which, as you mentioned, is only a decade away, really, in terms of that clean energy switch? I don't think it's enough, but it's a big start. Yes, there's going to be, we're going to need much more, more action, more resources, more creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I think even, is, is the question, have we done enough? Or, yeah, I think that's that's the more important question. Like, have we done enough? Because I don't think we have. So the answer is no. And there's always more we can do and we can be more intentional in getting creative in where we get these funding sources. Do you see, just out of curiosity, in Minneapolis, we raised the franchise fee, which is basically like a sales tax, if you will, on electric and gas bills as a small source of funding. That It's orders of magnitude less money than Seattle has through the Jumpstart tax. But there have been some conversations about we should go back to this and actually raise it a significant amount that would really fund a significant amount of work. Is there... I mean, it's very early to ask this kind of question when you just passed it this year, but do you anticipate that this is a place you could go back and say, well, maybe we should raise more money from the same thing, whether it's change the rates or apply it to different companies or something like that? I definitely think of, like we should assess like every every few years anyways and see, you know, is it working? Is it is it doing the thing? Or I feel like options should be put on the table every and see how effective has this, you know, worked also. I feel like that that's a really important thing to figure out. But I, at this time, like I don't know. Do you think that this model of taxing high-salaried employees of big businesses is something that other cities should consider? If you got to start over again, you're helping to organize in Tacoma or you're helping to organize in Phoenix or something like that. Is there anything that you do differently when you're thinking about the design of that tax or the way that you talk to the community about it? I don't know if you know about like Washington, like. Seattle's sometimes viewed as an outlier, <laughs> like, oh, well, they're doing that stuff in Seattle. So I, I do wish if we were to go back in time that there could have been more like city collaboration. So it didn't, it wasn't just this random event that happened in Seattle, but rather like, because we know, our, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have been pushed out of Seattle. And I think that other cities are also struggling right now with revenue and their own climate planning and housing issues. And so it's not the problems we have in Seattle, although they they feel really heavy right now. I don't even live in Seattle anymore, but I think that they actually would resonate with people across the state. And so if there was more collaboration with other cities or other states, could be could be a powerful movement. And just like in context, like Washington State, we don't have an income tax. We're like one of them. We are the most regressive state in the country with the with our tax structure. So it's an ongoing issue around revenue with our, our the entirety of our state. And so one city, you know, stepping up and saying like, okay, we're going to tax these higher <laughs> income earners is, is bold, especially if this is a state that has had challenges doing that. And so what would it look like if we all 
work together to change that. I wish we, we didn't have to wait for a pandemic to be proactive about moving away from a regressive tax system that continues to hurt already vulnerable communities. Increasing sales tax, a, a dollar loss to sales tax is a higher cost to someone who is already poor compared to someone who earns $150,000 in annual compensation. And if we're being honest here, big corporations like Amazon don't pay the full cost of their negative externalities. And, and in the middle of this pandemic, they continue to have the huge earnings from, from this crisis. I don't know if you've seen my colleague Stacy's work, but we've got a big spear aimed at Amazon pretty much all the time. She does a lot of research on their market power and the fact that they are too big. Pretty much par for the course on this podcast to have that kind of frank conversation about how big corporations have a lot of influence. I mean, I think it's, I, I appreciate what you were saying, Jill, as well about this idea of, you know, Seattle has this reputation as sort of an outlier and yet I feel like one of the things I found really interesting just about, for example, the presidential campaign in the Democratic primary is that some of the things that like Bernie Sanders talked about that that you really don't get from a, a Joe Biden or some of the other candidates was this idea that corporations have too much power. And, and there is some shared belief of that across the political spectrum. There are even a lot of conservatives who say, yeah, we don't want these private institutions to be able to control our lives, to limit our choices and our freedoms. And so it's one of the things I find so intriguing about this approach is that, um, you know, something like an income tax is, I think, fairly partisan in terms of how things fall down. But something like this that really targets high earners at big corporations or really, I think maybe even more than anything, focuses on big corporations, focuses on a problem that I think broadly a lot of Americans see as a threat to the, their way of life and to, and to fairness. Yes, <laughs> I, I agree. And I, I feel like whenever we have like community dialogues, people are thinking it, but then when they get in a room together with other people also thinking it and they're like, oh man, other people think this too. And I think that's also the role that Sage and Got Green plays. It's like we, we kind of bring people together and just talk about what's what's going on in our community and people get fired up and want to do stuff, you know, and that's where the people power, the importance of like bringing our communities to these to these spaces to that point where they're like, OK, things can change. It doesn't have to always be like this. I am very inspired right now, with, even though things are really hard with COVID and the police killings and just <laughs> life is hard right now. <laughs> But I, I'm really inspired by the youth organizing, by the energy in the streets. And I think that's really what's been creating all of these games, these organizing games recently. I think that was a really nice way to wrap up. I'm wondering, Abigail, if you have anything that, whether it's in the work that you're doing or something that you've been reading that sort of helps keep you going through 2020, which I think is a high bar for a lot of folks. Is there anything that you'd like to share that sort of helps you keep energy for this work in a trying time? Yeah, I just, just wrote it down. The solidarity work that we're seeing in our communities is really inspiring. We already know that a lot of our community partners are the first responders in their communities when the crisis hit. And I think that 
got green and sage, like we're a values-driven organization and we work to turn our values and ideas into transformative action. And the city it did the right thing for, for passing progressive revenue because it's it's in the critical and worst moments when we reveal who we are as leaders, as community members, and what our true values look like in action. And so for the council to um, demonstrate what their values are by um, standing in solidarity with our BIPOC communities, like that is, that that keeps me going. It makes the work a little easier, even though there's a lot of challenges that are continue to come up, seeing the the power that we're building through our organizing work and being able to hold our elected leaders accountable, that keeps us going. Yeah, I you, you just inspired me. I, I really do want to give a shout out to the, the folks who have been leading this work you know, to criminalize Seattle, King County Equity Now, that's some powerful Black-led organizing in our city, and also the COVID mutual aid. We've just been seeing this spread all over the county, all over the city, just like folks are, are are stepping up in leadership and it's really inspiring. Like there's even new organizations popping up. I'm happy to be part of it. Well, Jill and Abigail, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about your work and the really big success, I think, not just for Seattle, but in terms of modeling what other cities can do to approach some of these thorny issues with the Jumpstart Tax. I it's very exciting to be able to tell this story and to, I think, help seed some ideas like this for other cities about how they attack these very challenging issues and to do it in a time when, you know, your traditional sources of revenue are, are not as robust. So thanks again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having us. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Delfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.